Well, good morning, everyone. I know I said this already, but happy Mother's Day. Uh, it is so good to be here uh, with you celebrating today. One of the things I love about the church is um, it, you may have a, complica- a complicated relationship with your, your mother or with motherhood in general. Uh, that today may be a day of joy. It may be a day of pain. It may be a mixed bag. But one of the things I love about the church is that no matter what our family of origin is, we're entered into this new family. Um, where all those things can be redeemed and redefined. And so I just again want to say thank you to all of the women of our church. Um, We are just grateful for you and we celebrate you today. Um, I want to start this morning by sharing a parable, a modern day parable that you may have heard before. And uh, there's some good wisdom, there's some good truth in it, and it leads to our our topic of today in our series uh, about things that the Bible or Jesus never said. The parable goes like this, um, that there was a, a huge hurricane. A huge hurricane hit the Gulf uh, of Mexico, and the flooding began. And as the flooding continued to raise up and raise up, eventually this, this Christian minister uh, had to get out of his house because the water level was rising so much. And he had to get on the roof of his house so that he could protect himself from the rain. And he was convinced, God is going to rescue me. God will save me. And so he's up on that roof, and he's just as confident as can be, God is going to save me today. So somebody comes up in a boat, and they're like, hey, get in, we'll take you to safety. He's like, no, 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 I don't need your boat. God's going to save me. And then a little bit later, the the water level continues to rise, continues to rise. A helicopter comes along and says, come on, get in, we'll take you to safety. He's like, I don't need your helicopter. God's going to save me. And then he drowned. And then he gets to heaven, and he sees God, and he goes, hey, man, what's the deal? You said you would save me. I I trusted you would save me. And God said, I sent you a boat. I sent you a helicopter. What else did you want from me? I tried to save you. Right? This is this, this modern parable that, like, God does the work, but we have to participate. Right? That's kind of the idea behind it. And unfortunately, one of the things this leads to is our, our, our saying for today, uh, which gets misused and abused a little too often. It's this parable that God helps those who help themselves. In fact, uh, 80% of Americans believe that this phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is a verse in the Bible. 52% of American Christians believe that the Bible teaches this exact thing. So this is one of those things that's so deeply ingrained in us in our way of thinking about life and our way uh, way of thinking about God that we actually think God said it. And the truth is, he never did. And so as we've done, as I did last week, and as I'm going to do this week, uh, there's a seed of truth in this idea that God helps those who help themselves. And and that's true of all of the phrases that we'll discuss this uh, series. But this one in particular, I think, has done a little bit more harm uh, than it has done good because of the attitude that it, it creates in us and the way that we must see the world in order for us to believe this is true. But there is a seed of truth in this. Think of the guy on the roof waiting for the flood. God's doing the work. He's sending the boat. He's sending the helicopter. All the guy has to do is accept the help. We do need to participate in what God is doing in our lives. So yes, there is some truth to this statement, God helps those who help themselves. In fact, the book of Thessalonians, Paul talks about this and how in the community of the church, there's a rule about this. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. 
We hear that some of you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. And so Paul is saying, you can't just wait for God to drop manna from heaven into your lap. You have to work. You have to do something. You have to participate in what I'm doing in the world. Again, Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.8, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This is, this is harsh words. Has den- you've denied the faith if, you're re- if you refuse to work, if you refuse to provide for those, take care of those that God has entrusted to you. Yeah, God provides for you, but you have to participate. God, in, to some degree, helps those who help themselves. Spiritually speaking, there is a seed of truth in this. We participate with God, as Paul says, in working out our salvation. Look at Philippians 2. Therefore, my dear friends, as you, have always, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you uh, to will and act in order to fulfill his good purposes. He's saying we need to work out our salvation even though it's God who does the work of salvation. You see what it's saying? God does the heavy lifting, but we have to participate. So, I want to start this morning by acknowledging there is definitely a seed of truth in here. You know, when I push back on the idea, this, this phrase that God helps those who help themselves, I'm, I'm pushing back on the way that it's used and, and the view of the world it represents. Because when people say this, they often really mean God only helps those who help themselves. Uh, it goes with the mindset that says, well, if you're poor, it's your fault. That's the only explanation. If your life isn't the way you want it to be, it's because you're not trying hard enough. So when applied that broadly, I have to say, I don't think this verse stands up to the truth of Scripture. This statement reflects a belief that our efforts alone determine our situation, and there are no other outside factors. This is problematic, and it does not represent the Bible. It's like we read Genesis 1 and 2, and the world that God created— and he created everything and called it good, and then he created humans, and he called us very good, and then it just stops right there. And that's the world we think we live in. A very good creation filled with very good people who are all created equal, and therefore the playing field is perfectly level. Again, God gave us work to do in Genesis 1 through 2. Work existed before the fall. Did you know that? That's, that's really important that we understand that. I'm not trying to say work is bad or that people shouldn't work hard. God gave us work to do before sin entered the world. Work is a good thing. All of that was true, but then Genesis 3 happens, and we very good humans invited sin into our lives and into the world, and since then, even work, which was given to us for a good, has become frustrating, not as fruitful as it should be, not as fulfilling as it should be, and we get our priorities mixed up, and we become obsessed with work, and we become obsessed with putting our identity in what we do and how well we do it. Work has been twisted up by the fall and what sin has wreaked havoc on this world, but work is still good, and I want to affirm this truth, this truth that we believe that all people are created with equal value and worth, but sin has twisted the whole world up. And this is an important part of understanding the Bible. We read the Bible often through an individualistic lens because we're wrapped up in an individualistic culture. 
I'll say more about this later, but in relation to this idea of sin, we typically see sin as isolated acts that individual people commit against God. But the Bible is not written by or for an individualistic culture. It's written for people meant to live in community together. And that's why the the Bible sees the destructive power of sin in fuller terms, not just in isolated acts by individuals, but as a force. Sin is a force of evil at work in the world. It impacts individuals. It impacts relationships. It impacts worldly systems, and it impacts all of creation. So why does this matter? Why am I going on and on about sin and how the world works and what work is all about? Because if we focus on the world as it was created where all people were equal and the playing field was level, we must recognize that sin has messed all of that up. The whole world is completely twisted up by the destructive forces of sin. And so when we throw a phrase around like God helps those who help themselves, we're failing to recognize that not everybody can help themselves. What do I mean? The Newsies strike. Look at these kids. The Newsboy Strike of 1899. Disney made a, a musical about this. You know, Santa Fe. You know that one, anybody? Okay, I love that musical. It's not nearly as happy. The true story is not really as happy as the Newsies Disney musical portrays. Look at how young these kids are. They're orphans forced to work in the streets selling newspapers for very little money. These kids have shoes, but many of the the newsies in in New York City didn't have shoes. And the the major newspapers, some of the wealthiest people in the United States, continue to uh, hike the rate of the newspapers that these kids were expected to buy and then sell on the streets. So these little boys went up against some of the most powerful people in New York just to earn some basic human rights. These kids lived not in state-run orphanages where their needs were cared for. They lived in houses where they had to pay rent. And churches would donate clothing to these houses that these boys were housed in, and the houses would charge the kids for the free clothes they got. You see what I'm saying when I say that, that not everybody can help themselves. These are children. These were children who had no rights no ability to dig themselves out of the situation they were in. Now, thankfully, we've got some child labor laws in effect. But the the system, the financial system that allowed that to happen was corrupted by evil. And while we try to fix it and make it better all the time, it's still the same system we have, and so we have to recognize that not everybody is on equal footing. Listen to these words from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It is all right to tell a man to lift himself up by his own bootstraps, But it's a cruel jest, it's a joke, it's a cruel joke to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself up by his own bootstraps. He said this as a part of what was called the Poor People's Campaign, and it was one of the the strategies of rich Southerners um, in order to, to maintain power and money, was to stir up racial tensions between poor white people and black people who were poor because they were kept that way by the written and unwritten rules in the South. These rich Southerners... They wanted to pay their workers the bare minimum in awful conditions. And they knew the best way to keep their their workers from revolting against them and seeing them as their enemies was to give them a different enemy. And so they, they they pitted poor white people against poor black people. They stoked racism 
so they could keep things going the way they were. And Dr. King was leading this poor people's campaign. And his whole goal was, goal was to show poor white people and poor black people that they weren't so different. And that if they worked together, if they could unify, they could actually create a better world for everyone. It was during these efforts that he was putting together that he was assassinated. Okay. Before you start shouting at me and calling me a communist. Just kidding. Why do I bring up Newsies? Why do I bring up Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.? I think it's important for us as Christians not to see the world the way the culture tells us to see the world, but to see the world the way that God sees the world. Through this illusion, all people are created and have equal value. But that doesn't mean they're treated that way in this world. It doesn't mean that the playing field is level. And in fact, the Bible never claims it. Look in Deuteronomy. This is one of dozens and dozens and dozens of verses who use these three categories to talk about people who needed special care in the nation of Israel. Talking about God, it said, He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. One of literally dozens of passages that, that take God's people have got to care for widows and orphans and foreigners. It acknowledges that the world under this broken, sinful world that we live in is not set up for all people to succeed. In the fallenness of this world, some have a level playing field and some have mountains to climb. You know, when they talk about the fatherless, they're talking about people with no safety net. If you don't have a father, you don't have a trade to be passed on to you so that you can provide for yourself. You don't get an inheritance. Some of you know relationally what this does to you. If you, if you grow up without one or both of your parents, you know the mental, emotional, psychological toll that this can have on a person and their development. Widows. We know that in, in biblical times, women had almost no value outside of the home. They were financially vulnerable. They had no choice but to hope and care for charity from the community if their husband passed away. Foreigners. If someone left their homeland, it wasn't for good reasons. And that's the same today, right? We've, we've welcomed all these folks from Afghanistan into our community and into our church. And we know the horrible things that they went through that caused them to have to come here. They were usually forced out. They're not here by choice. They're not exploring the world in like a gap year between college and real world and with their disposable income. They're displaced by horrible circumstances. Adrian's own grandparents had to flee uh, first from the Russians and then from the Nazis to the United States in World War II just to survive, let alone have a better life. All of these examples are examples of people who cannot help themselves, at least on an even playing field. They need help along the way, or they wouldn't have made it out. Like the guy on the roof in the parable, they do need to participate. We do need to work. We do need to participate, but some way... Our only first step that we can take in participating is accepting the help, help that's offered to us. With God's help and with others' help, we can make the best of our situation. But we cannot simply pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We often need someone to gift us a pair of boots, and then we can go to work. This is true in my own story. When I was in college, I fancied myself as a self-made man, even though I you know, couldn't grow a beard, I still can't, but I wasn't really a man, I was just a boy, you know. I'm in college, and I'm working 50 hours a week, 
so that I don't have any student loan debt. I barely ever sleep because I'm either studying or working. I am busting my butt so I can be the first person in my family to graduate from college. And I really did believe I'm doing this alone, all by myself. But there was a time where no matter how hard I worked, I was about to miss a, uh, a school payment and get kicked out for a semester. And Adrian's parents wrote a check. And then, even though my life at home wasn't great, I had a really kind of rocky relationship with my parents, I, was, I had a room there. I didn't have to go pay rent somewhere else. Even though I was working a ton to pay for school, I had a room. I needed that help. I wouldn't have made it without it. You know, there's even a time where I was serving in ministry as part of this. One of my jobs was to serve in ministry, and I was just like, God, why does it have to be so hard? Why does it have to be so hard? And God constantly reminded of all of the, the things that he did along the way to make it even possible for me to pursue my dream of graduating college. Here's one other thing to throw out at you. I just looked this, this morning at what the uh, tuition is at my university. It's five times more now what it was then. It's crazy. There's no way I would have been able to do it today. Not a chance. 50 hours a week wouldn't have provided enough money for me to actually pay that off without tons of student loan debt. I say all this to say I worked hard. I'm not here saying that people shouldn't work hard. But it could have all fallen apart at any one time if someone hadn't stepped in and helped me through it. So I've been making this case this morning, not to our shame, but just to deal with reality. The world is not as it should be. And it is not as even a playing field as it should be in terms of success and achievement. And I think it's important that we look at the world that we live in as it is and not the way we want it to be. Because in this world, God has a calling for us in the midst of all of that. And we're going to get to that for a minute. But, but I do want to talk about one more reality of life where there is an even playing field. And this is a spiritual even playing field. Because you know, if, we, if we applied this, the, the, you know, this phrase, God helps those who help themselves, to our spiritual relationship with God, we'd be lost. And here's why. Because if, we, if it was up to us to earn salvation and earn God's love, and the standard is perfection, raise your hand if you think you're there. I'm like, get my hands as deep in my pockets as I can. I am not there. I am not perfect. If I'm, it's up to me to earn God's love, I can't do it. I cannot help myself. Or if you have a different way of looking at the world, some, some people look at the world like, well, what if it's like a scale? And as long as the good things I do outweigh the bad things I do, then I'm fine. But who judges that? Who's in charge of that? Who, if you ask them, even the worst person in the world would say, yeah, I do far more bad than good. No one would say that. We all would take a rosier picture of ourselves if it was up to us to decide if we were good or bad, if we receive God's grace or not. At the heart of Christianity, there is a belief that we are on an even playing field when it comes to our spiritual lives. The book of Romans, Paul says this, but now, apart from the law, uh, excuse me, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. 
This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew or Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by what? By our works, by our goodness? No. By his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. It is important that we recognize that we are lost on our own. But through God's free gift of grace through the redemption that came from Christ Jesus, we can have true and everlasting life. We've talked about the fall. Genesis 3, when, when sin wreaks havoc on the world and we invite it in. Paul's saying we are all responsible for this. We have all fallen short. This is the level playing field. We are in this mess together. However, because this, this gift of God, we have justification and redemption, Paul tells us. To be redeemed is a biblical idea of being bought back. Think of the Exodus. The Bible uses this as a spiritual metaphor a lot. The Bible tells us that we sold ourselves into slavery to sin, and Jesus gave his life to buy us back so that we can have life in God's presence. That's what redemption means. Then it says we're justified. Justification, this is a, a, a biblical legal metaphor. It says not only we were forgiven for our crimes, if we were in a court of law, our crimes are forgiven. We're given an innocent verdict. When God sees us, he sees the righteousness and goodness of Jesus. This is huge. This is a gift from God. It is nothing you or I can earn. And this should shape our worldview. Our posture should be gratitude to God. Because we've insa- it, it received this insane grace. We've re- received this insane generosity from God to forgive us and give us this gift. It should shape the way we see each other. Later, Paul goes on to say, why should any of us boast? We've done nothing other than accept a gift that was given to us by Christ. That's the level playing field. All have fallen short, and yet all have been offered the gift of God's grace. So spiritually speaking, it's actually far more accurate to say this. God helps those who cannot help themselves. And every one of us is in that boat together. God helps those who cannot help themselves. Our posture should always be one of recognizing and receiving. We recognize our need for God and we receive his grace. That's the reality. We were all separated from God because of our sin and the brokenness that we've contributed to this world, and all of us are offered extreme grace by God. And so the only real way to help ourselves spiritually is to accept God's grace. He expects us to respond to that. He expects us to grow over time. He expects us to value what he values. He expects expects us to live out of this place of gratitude. To have a posture, though, that says, As Jesus did, the one who's been forgiven much loves much. I've received so much grace, I need to offer a crazy amount of grace to everyone else. When you've received radical grace, you offer radical grace. And so what does that look like? What does it look like to to see the world through this lens that God helps those who cannot help themselves? Well, first we have to just kind of inspect our culture a little bit. And I have this up here. It's kind of the way the world works and the way the kingdom of God works. And as as kingdom citizens, as Christians, we want to live in the kingdom of God way here and now, the way it will be for all eternity. The world tells you that independence is the most important thing you can have. Don't depend on anyone. 
pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But the kingdom of God is a place where we recognize our dependence on God and we recognize our need for each other. This this isn't a a one-man show. We need each other. And that leads to the next one, this idea of individualism versus community. The way our culture sees uh, truth and right and wrong, the individual gets to decide. That's the way the world sees things now in this era that we live in. It's up to the individual to decide what is right and wrong. There's no objective standard. Individualism would have you believe that you are the main character of the story, the story of God that's billions of years old. The Bible says, from dust you are made, to dust you will return. I am not the main character of the story. I'm at best a sidekick. And it's good news that I'm not the main character. The world under me as king is a really bad world, I promise you. It would not be great. But it is good news that Jesus is king and he is the main character of the story because what does he offer? What does he provide the world? Sacrificial love. And so we need to move from a way of thinking about the world through individualistic terms where I'm the main character to I'm a part of a community, a community of people, a family where God is our father. Instead of trying to find eternal meaning in myself and in my life and my desires, I actually find true eternal meaning in the community of God that will last forever. And the last one, and I think this one is the one that that gets me the most when I hear this phrase, God helps those who help themselves. It comes from a mindset that the world is survival of the fittest. You know, it's, it's social Darwinism. That the idea of the natural order of the world and life is that the fittest rise to the top and those that are beneath them on the ladder They're somehow less valuable and less worthy, and the reason they're there is their fault. But in the kingdom, people are treated with equal worth. In the kingdom, we we all see the level playing field that we're lost without Jesus Christ, and we're all invited to his table. And around this table, we're called to love. This is where I'm going to kind of wrap it up this morning. How are we supposed to love? John, in his letter, 1 John, He talks about this, and he says, Let us not love with mere speech, but let us love with actions and with truth. Love isn't just a feeling or a phrase that we say. Love is something that's demonstrated. We've received insane love from God that he's demonstrated through the cross of Jesus Christ, and now we demonstrate love to one another in tangible ways. We recognize that God helps those who cannot help themselves. He's helped us who cannot help ourselves. And we participate in his helping of others. When we live by the ways of the kingdom here and now, we love with action and truth and the idea that there is plenty of God's grace to go around. There are plenty of resources that no one should be hungry or lonely. We love one another with actions and truth and we participate with God and his helping of others. Last thing I want to say. This idea of widows, orphans, foreigners, this, this, this is a practical thing that we can learn from today. And this didn't just stop in the, the, the Old Testament. James says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and blameless is to take care of the widows and orphans in their distress. He doesn't mention foreigners, you know why? Because he was writing to a church that was in exile. He was writing to a church that were strangers in strange lands. They knew exactly what it was like to be a foreigner. 
but he highlights widows and orphans. Widows, those who mourn, those who have to figure out life without the most important person in their life. People who need tangible help in this next season of their life. There are people in our church and in our community who are mourning, who have to figure out life in this way. Let's wrap our arms around those people. Let's make sure they know that they're a part of this family. And even though they're missing a piece of themselves, they still have a place where they're loved and cared for. Orphans, not just the newsies. But this is still a real thing. We partner with Foster the City. We partner with an organization, and this month is Foster Care Awareness Month. We partner with an organization that wants to have every uh, child have have a church that loves and surrounds them. Kids who, who, you know, need care because they're not being cared for by the ones who are supposed to care for them. Because of tragedy or because of sin and generation of sin in families. Foster the City wants to help moms and dads get to a place where they can love and care for their children. We've got an amazing opportunity here to do exactly what the Bible calls us to do, to care for these kids. The foreigner, refugees, right here we've watched people Weeks after coming here, escaping Afghanistan, come to our ESL classes and be loved by the people of this church to the point where people of this church help them find a job or furniture or whatever resource they were needing. We work with Compassion Network and we've got so many more opportunities to continue to do this. I say all this to say, God is still doing the same work. God is still at work helping those who can't help themselves. He's done it for us, at least spiritually. But you can probably think of a million ways that God has intervened in your life life and made a way where it was impossible, where there was no other way. And he wants to continue to do that work in us and through us. And so for for a minute, I just want to ask you to close your eyes. And I'm going to invite the band up, and we're going to sing some worship songs to respond to what God may be calling us to as individuals and as a church to care for those who cannot help themselves. Let's first just acknowledge that most of us would be helpless without our moms or without the women in our life who have loved and cared for us. Let's give God thanks for them. But as you have your eyes closed, who else needs God's help? Who needs God's help spiritually? Who is lost without Jesus right now in your life? Maybe it's you, and if that's true, I would say respond today Participate with God. Receive his grace. But your neighbors, your peers, your coworkers, your sports teams, the people that, that you hang out with, who needs help spiritually right now? Who needs help tangibly right now? Needs that could be met, but where we could actually be an answer to our very own prayer for these people. Take a moment and just pray for anybody that God brings to your mind. God has helped us who could not help ourselves. And he's calling us to partner with him, to join him in offering help. He's called us to live in a way that that answers the prayer, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus, we 
want to hear your voice today. God, it is easier to ignore the problems that exist around us and the people that are hurting. It is easier to hide behind cliches like God helps those who help help themselves so that we don't have to feel responsible. And yet this isn't some holy guilt trip, Lord. It is a response of gratitude. You have done so much for me. How, How dare I close my fists try to keep it all for myself. You have done so much for me spiritually. You've done so much in the way of providing for me. God, open up my hands. Open up my heart. Help me to see the way that you see. Help me to love the way that you love. Lord, our world works one way, but your kingdom works another. Help us live right now in those kingdom realities, in community with one another independence on you and each other. And with an overwhelming love, you've filled up our cup with love to the brim and it's overflowing. God, let that love flow out into the lives around us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.